Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. You look good today. You doing well? Pretty good? Pretty okay? Good. Good. I'm glad to know that. Hey, if, um, if you have been hanging out here at the river for a long while or a short while and have not taken that spiritual step of stepping into the river fully and becoming uh, a member here. I would love to invite you to a little seminar today at four o'clock. We call it Exploring Church Membership. And in that uh, time, myself and uh, Pastor Dave Harden will be sharing uh, a little bit about how God you know, gave birth to this church and where we think he has positioned us to do ministry best and where we believe God's calling us to, you know, just head out into the days ahead. And so I would just invite you to, to, to join us. It'll be about an hour, 45 minutes. Um, if I talk really fast, maybe an hour and 44. Um, and, uh, but I would just invite you to come. And if you've got questions about our church that you have uh, hoped would get answered, that would be the environment where they'll be answered and uh, hopefully provide some encouragement. And, and at the end of that journey, if you decide, I, I would like to join River Bluff Church, you, you'll be able to do that. We'll have some membership coaches there, and they'll just walk you through that process. It'll take about 15 more minutes. But I encourage you to do that. I think it can be informative. It'll give us an opportunity to get to maybe know you a little bit better. And um, so I look forward to that uh, today at four. If you have child care needs, if you would stop by the Welcome Center on the way out, there's a little place where you can sign up um, to, to come because we'll need to plan to uh, care for your kiddos. But uh, if you don't need child care and you go to lunch and, you know, you're not thinking you're coming, but that, you know, you get a really good burrito at lunch and you think, hey, I can come back, um, then you just show up. Don't worry about signing up, okay? All right, we are in a series of messages that we began uh, after Easter where we're looking at the first encounters that folks had with the risen Jesus. And last week we looked at Mary Magdalene. Uh, In a couple weeks, um, uh, Pastor Dean is going to come and share uh, from uh, the, the Gospels about the, the story of Thomas, which actually kind of is on the heels of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, Pastor Kurt's going to come, and he's going to open God's Word to us um, from Luke and look at uh, the disciples' encounter on the road to Emmaus. But today, we're going to look at um, kind of the latter encounter that Jesus had on that first Easter Sunday. There were several different encounters, and we're going to look at one of the latter ones on that first day. So if you've got your Bibles with you, um, if you'll open them to the Gospel of John, we're going to be in chapter 20 of John's Gospel, and we're going to look at uh, verses beginning in verse 19, John uh, John 20, verse 19. We read this, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them 
and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I want us to kind of step into the picture of that scene uh, together for uh, just a moment and, and think uh, of this is the evening, it says, of that Sunday, which is the Sunday of the resurrection. A lot has happened. If you read kind of, there, there's this thing called the Gospels Paralleled, and you can read kind of all the narratives kind of smashed together um, in, in sequence of events. And one of the things that you'll figure out real quick, if you read the Gospels uh, of the resurrection, there was a lot of running that went on. People were just running back and forth and back and forth throughout the city of Jerusalem. Um, it, was, it was kind of a, a, an interesting day. And we get to the evening uh, of that day, and there's, there's this encounter. Now, Jesus has physically appeared in his risen state to first Mary Magdalene. We looked at that last week. Then later in the day, uh, that morning, he appears to some other women and then he appears to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You can read about that in Luke 24. And now he is, we also know that he at some point appeared to the apostle Peter privately. And now he's appearing to the gathered disciples. Now, um, at this point, we know that there are at least 10 of them there. We, uh, we know that Judas is not there. Um, and we find out later at the end of the chapter here that uh, Thomas was not there either for this gathering. But we know there's at least 10 of them there. I think there were probably more. I think the women were still there. I think that the, those two disciples uh, on the road um, to Emmaus that have come back, I think they're there. In fact, I think there are a lot of people there in this, in this locked room. But here's what's happened. Those 10 especially are hiding. They, they, now, and now think about with me these disciples. What, what has happened to them? Three and a half days earlier, let's say, Thursday morning. Thursday morning was a great day. They, they thought that this was going to be the day. They were on top of the world. They thought they were reaching kind of the climax of when Jesus was going to be enthroned and they were going to rule the world with Jesus. It was just great. And Thursday afternoon, they were filled with anticipation because they were going to get to celebrate this Passover with Jesus. And it was going to be incredible. Everything was just going the way they had hoped and dreamed and, and planned probably even better. And then they get to this Passover meal. And Thursday evening, Jesus starts to say some things that he said before, but I think they had forgotten. But he begins to say some things that cause their hopes to start to unravel. And now it's Sunday. Sunday evening. And they're locked behind these doors of fear. They're isolated from the world. They're cut off. They're, 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 they're locked up, I think, in shame and some other things. And so this raised a question in my mind. Hopefully, maybe it did for you. Wasn't there at least one disciple, one of those ten that were there, who would have remembered all that Jesus had said? I mean, especially in light of having some people, eyewitnesses come and tell them that he's risen. I mean, I think I would have been out looking for him if I was convinced that he was risen. But they're not. They're, they're still locked up. 
You know, now, don't, don't fault them too much. Remember, you know, he had told them again and again and again that he was going to be uh, arrested, he was going to be beaten, he was going to be crucified, but then he would be raised from the dead. Again, Jesus had told them multiple times. But apparently, none of the ten were picking up on that. They, they, they just weren't there. And here's what I think had happened. Fear had destroyed their faith. It had just wrecked it. Um, and now they were in this kind of self-imposed prison, locked in a room, kind of, kind of like sealed up in, in this tomb of, of their own making because what they had believed and hoped on Thursday was gone. Now again, before we get too judgy on, on these disciples, let's think about the truth about us, uh, about how life kind of plays out for us. Because truthfully, you and I know this about ourselves, we can be sitting here on a Sunday. We can be captured, our heart can get captured by something from God's Word. We can have great worship and celebrate the presence of the living God in our lives. It can be beautiful and powerful, and Monday comes. And our feet get knocked out from under us. And the concerns of the world come rushing back in, and our circumstances kind of lock our hearts down, and the truth is the word that we heard the day before begins to seep out of us. We leak those truths. And then by, by Tuesday, we find we're not operating in faith anymore. But fear and frustration and, and, and failure seem to be the air we're, we're breathing, and it just, it destroys us. And, and like the disciples in, in verse 19, too many of us go back and lock ourselves in a prison of our own making. But I want you to know what Jesus does. Jesus comes into that and speaks peace. He steps into the prison where our heart is held captive, usually by our own imprisoning. And Jesus comes and steps into that moment. And so he, he comes to us in his resurrection. I want you to look at the rest of verse 19. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Then in my Bible, there's a comma. There's a comma. It's a great comma. It's a great place to pause. And then the next two words are, Jesus came. Jesus, Jesus came into that, in, into that moment, into that point. And here's what I, I pray your heart gets captured by, is Jesus, the, the raised one, the risen one, wants to bring his resurrection peace to you and to me. And he does that, first of all, by coming to us. Right where we're at, right in our own despair, right in, in those places where our heart is, is locked up or locked down. Verse 19 says, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. See, when Jesus comes, he comes right into the midst of our mess, right into those places of pain, our struggles, right into the worst crisis we've ever experienced when it feels like all hope is gone, places where your soul may feel like it's sealed up in a tomb, but our God, that's where he walks into he comes right into that. Those places where we need him the most, where we're locked in our guilt and our shame and our brokenness and our bitterness and our unforgiveness, he comes. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 24, God tells us this, whenever I cause my name or wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. Wherever the name of God is spoken, Yahweh, the God of all creation, wherever his name is spoken, 
One of the things he will do when we find ourselves in those moments, he will come to us. Wherever his name is known, he will come to us. Jesus promised his disciples this. He promised them in John 14, just, just hours before his arrest, he was with them. And he promised them, he said, I will not leave you comfortless. You might abandon me, but I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. And Jesus is doing that in what we're reading about in John 20. Jesus, Jesus came to them. He came right into the middle of, of their mess and their struggle. And I love the way it, it speaks of what he did. And it says, and he stood among them. Friends, one of the things that Jesus will do in the middle of our struggle and our pain, our sorrow, our suffering, our brokenness, he will take a stand right there. Jesus will make a stand for you. The disciples are locked away. Locked away in their guilt and their shame and their fear and despair. But Jesus is not bound by any of those locks. He's not bound by any barrier that your life may build up to hide from him. And he, he's not put off by any of those things. He will come right into the middle of it. He'll walk right in. We don't know how he got there. We don't know whether he walked through the wall or whether, you know, Scotty beamed him down. or He was just there. Present. Taking a stand. Taking his stand against what they were facing. The fear they were facing. Jesus stood among them. And friends, I believe that's something that we need to pray today. For ourselves. We, we need to pray that Jesus would come and stand in our lives. That the Holy Spirit would show up with power in our midst, in our, in our homes, in our families, in our city, in, in River Bluff Church, in, in the church in Charleston. The Spirit of God, we would just pray, come and stand with us. I think it's an incredible prayer. I think it's a prayer we need to pray for our nation. Jesus, come and stand. And so I want to encourage you as well to be part of the National Day of Prayer. Whether, whether if you can't make it to the building, at least download it and, and take some time to pray that day. To join Christians all over our land, as Michelle said, to pray for our nation. I, I just love that verse. Jesus came and he stood among them. And then he speaks. These are the first words that Jesus spoke to his gathered disciples. First words. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. First words out of Jesus' mouth to, in that setting. Why, why do you think it was peace? Well, one, one reason could be because that was just kind of like the most common greeting of the day. That word peace, it was shalom. It was, it was shalom. They would have heard Jesus probably say this thousands of times over the course of the years that they were with him. It's kind of like us walking into a room, we, we greet one another saying, Sup, Shalom. You know, it was, it was a common greeting. So it would not have been that unusual. In, in one respect, there was nothing kind of uh, unusual or powerful uh, uh, about it. But just three days earlier, on that Thursday night, Jesus had also said to his disciples, I'm going to give you a peace that is not of this world. Not a what's up peace. It's, it's not going to be that kind of shalom, kind of greeting. I'm going to give you a peace that's unlike any peace you've ever known. I'm going to give you a gift and an experience you've never had. I'm going to give you peace with God. And in this moment when he speaks those words, my peace I give to you. Peace be with you. He is speaking peace 
in the middle of their fears. He's taking a stand and he's speaking his peace into their pain and their suffering and their sorrow and their fear and their brokenness and their guilt. See, we need to pray this. God, would you speak your peace into our stuff, into our shame? into our guilt and our pain, into our bitterness, into the captivity that we've locked ourselves, into the tombs that we have built for ourselves. Now, even, even if the disciples didn't realize how desperate they were, Jesus did. And he steps right into the midst of that, and he takes his stand. Now, I, I don't know exactly what they were thinking. I don't know exactly what they were feeling but I know what Jesus does next is just so powerful. And it's the second part of this peace that Jesus is bringing in his resurrection that I want you to see. And it's an action that he does. And, and by doing it, Jesus is reassuring his disciples uh, th that they can have peace in his resurrection. See, Jesus has now come to where the disciples, right in the middle of this captivity that they've created themselves, he takes this stand, he speaks these words of, of peace to them, but then he shows them something. So the first thing he does is declare peace, and now he's going to demonstrate something to them. It's kind of like show and tell. And so verse 20 tells us this, when he had said this, he showed them his hands, and he showed them his side. He, he pointed these things out they were, so that they could see them. He could, they could see his wounds, the marks where the nails had pierced, the, 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 his side where that, that sword had been thrust in. And what he's doing is he is showing them proof of the resurrection. He's, he's saying, guys, it is me. I was dead. You saw them do this to me. I, I was dead and I am back from the dead. And here's the truth. Those wounds spoke another message to them about peace. Uh, about peace with God. Did anybody remember Isaiah chapter 53? Isaiah chapter 53 tells us that the punishment that brought our peace, Jesus took. That punishment, that beating, those lashings, the, the crucifixion, that, 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 that's how our peace came to us. That peace with God came by that. By his wounds we are healed. That punishment that Jesus endured brought us, made possible a, a, a pathway for peace with God. And so the first thing Jesus says is peace be with you. That's the first words out of his mouth. He's saying it's a new day. You don't need to stay trapped in your shame or your guilt or your fear. It's resurrection day. There's power for you that you've never had access before. My wounds can heal that in you. My death on the cross provides peace for you, peace with God and peace with others unlike you've never known before. See, this is, this is a new day that Jesus is putting out here. And, and it's, it's for us in this day. It's for, for you if you're watching online. Jesus is saying it's for everyone. And what he's saying is, look, I fought the battle for you. I took the beating for you. I, I was wounded for you. I was crucified for you to make possible peace with God. And I have done that. In the cross, I have reconciled you to God. If you will receive me, Jesus said. If you'll receive and trust that what I did on the cross 
pays for that. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, if you'll put your trust in Jesus, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God is possible. We can have peace with God. We were enemies before. We were separated from God. But Jesus' death gave us peace. And that means that we have the kind of peace that we can relate in openness and vulnerability to God. We can just say, God, the truth about me is I'm a sinner. I I have shame. I have guilt. these, These things are true about me. And we can do that with one another. Peace brings that path to openness. Peace means everything. This peace that Jesus says, be with you. And it's available to all of us because of the grace of God. Because of that grace. And it's important for these disciples to hear those words about peace. And to see the pathway of peace was because of the sacrifice of Jesus. The grace of God in Christ. Now remember this. You know, um, they were still locked in the room. Now, I'm going to, I believe they were afraid of the Jews. As the scripture said, I get that. I, I would have been too. I, I would have been. They, were, they had asked about his disciples. And they had seen what had happened to Jesus. They had seen the beating. They had seen the crucifixion. And they knew most likely those Jewish leaders were coming after them next. But I think there was another kind of fear going on. I think there was a, a, another kind of shame going on. I think there was a guilt going on. Remember, Mary Magdalene had come and said, I've seen the risen Lord. Some other women came and said, we've seen the risen Lord. Two disciples have come and said, we've seen the risen Lord. Lock the doors. Now, I don't know that they were just trying to keep the Jews out. I, I wonder, just because of human nature. If I had abandoned Jesus in his greatest hour of need, if I had not been able to stay awake when Jesus asked me to be with him in prayer. If I had denied him three times and now they're telling me he's alive and he's looking for me, I might have been afraid to see him. I might have in my shame and my guilt and my sorrow, I might have been afraid of what he was going to say to me in our first greeting. Was he going to look at me and, and say, where were you? Why did you turn your back on me? Why did you abandon me? You promised me that you would be with me. Where did you go? I think that was part of what was going on in that locked room that day. And so when Jesus walks in in the middle of that mess, and the first things he says is, peace, peace be with you. No wonder the scripture tells us that they were glad to see the Lord then. It did, did you notice it didn't say they were glad to see him when he first appeared? It wasn't until after he spoke those words, peace be with you, that they were glad. And then he, he displays, he shows them the pathway to peace was grace. The sacrifice that he made on the cross, the wounds that he bore, the beating and the crucifixion that, that he took. And what that tells me is that, and I believe the disciples realized it, is there is never peace with God without first being the grace of God. You cannot find peace with God without going through the grace of God found in Jesus alone. 
There's no, no pathway by which men and women and children can be saved except the Lord Jesus. And that path is the path of grace. He poured out his grace on the cross on Calvary's hill. Friends, grace always comes before peace. It, it, it always does. It's one of the, the, the reasons that in many of Paul's letters and some of the other epistles, uh, they, they write about grace and peace. Grace always comes first. You can see this in Romans chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's repeated over and over. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace always precedes peace. You can't have peace with God until you step into the grace that he gives. And Jesus comes and he says grace to you. And he says to the disciples, I'm forgiving you. Look, this is what I did for you. And he's saying, I'm, I'm, I forgive you for bailing out on me. I forgive you for abandoning me. I forgive you for hiding from me. I forgive you for not honoring your words to me. I, I forgive you. You're free. Live in the peace of God. Now, this begs for us to answer a question. Have you received the grace of God in Christ personally? Have, have you trusted Christ? Have you put your faith in Jesus and received that grace so that you can then step into that peace? Or are you still thinking that you got to make your way a favor with God? That you, you kind of got to build some grace into it somehow, you know, that, 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 that you're still beating yourself up because you failed miserably Friday night or Saturday or maybe on the way to church today, you got into a, a tiff with your spouse or, you know, you, you reamed out your kids or, or, or whatever. You lost it. Maybe it was driving on Ashley Frustrate. I don't know. And, and there, there was there's no peace and you feel like I've let God down again. I can't even, you know, make it to church without blowing it. If you're, if you're living in that cycle of thinking that somehow you got to make it right with God before you can find His grace, you don't know grace. And that's why you're not living in peace. He wants his peace to be with you. He'll come and stand in the midst of those lies that you're believing about his grace. Because he wants you to find his peace. Now, I want to jump past verse 21 because I want to tie 21 and 23 together in a moment. And 22 is kind of a transition, but it's an important transition. It's actually glue that holds the verse 21 and 22 together, I believe, and it's this. In Jesus, in his resurrection, in bringing peace to us, part of what he does is he enables us. He empowers us with his divine power. Look at verse 22. It says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. For instance, this idea of breathing now, I mean, just think about it. Why did John decide that he needed to write down, Jesus exhaled? I mean, that's basically what he wrote. Jesus exhaled and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I imagine John had seen Jesus exhale thousands of times. I don't ever remember him writing about it until this very moment. Something special about this moment of exhaling. And Jesus saying, receive the Holy Spirit. John is pointing out a dynamic 
It's the moment when this grace and this peace can be celebrated in its fullness. The disciples kind of have locked themselves in this self-induced captivity. But Jesus chooses this moment to breathe on them and say to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Friends, when Jesus steps into our fears, when he steps into our brokenness, into our shame, our, our, our suffering, he always brings the, the gift of the presence of God. He always brings the gift of the presence of, of his spirit. One of my favorite phrases from the mouth of the risen Jesus is what we see in verse 22, receive the Holy Spirit. Re- receive this, this urging. Now, one of the things that I just want to point out, because it's, it's here in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, the primary language that it was written in was Hebrew. The New Testament, the primary language was Greek. In both the Hebrew and Greek language, the word for spirit and the word for breath gets used interchangeably. In both those languages of the Bible, I don't think that's an accident. I really think God designed that that way because these two things are interchangeable. And it, it, it gives us a picture it, it paints a, it's a word picture, a parable, if you would, of what life in the kingdom is supposed to look like. We are supposed to breathe in oxygen for our physical bodies, but we are supposed to be, breathe in the breath, the Spirit of God for, for our souls. Jesus breathed on them. I actually thought about suggesting that each of you breathe on your neighbor, but then I thought, nah, probably halitosis is set in already, and yeah, people don't do it. I see some of you doing it, and you know, people are running from you already, um, so don't, don't do that. But Jesus breathed on them, and this, this idea of the Spirit of God and the breath of life being one and the same is, is throughout the Scriptures. Look at Job 33. Verse 4, it says, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. There are these parallels throughout Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. And that that verb tense, we talked about this before, is a continuous action verb tense. It's not like, get filled up one day and go about your business. It means you need to continuously, ongoingly, be filled with the Spirit, inhaling the Spirit of God. How many of you got up this morning, everybody take a real deep breath right now, okay, let it out. How many of you got up this morning, took a really deep breath and didn't breathe again until just now? Anybody? No. We continuously breathe. We have to breathe in oxygen to sustain our lives. And the same is true with the life of your soul. You have to continually breathe in the Spirit of God. Those two things go together. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 5, we read these words, The Lord God who created the heavens and stretched them out, who created the earth and everything in it, who gives life and breath and spirit to everyone in the world. There is this connection between life and breath and spirit. And we're going to see how really great our need is for that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes these words. He says, God will raise us from death by the same power that he used when he raised the Lord to life. God, in his power, raised Jesus from the dead. Now, in in that moment, 
in the lives of the disciples, hearing this word, this word of peace being spoken over, seeing the display of grace, now hearing the gift of the Spirit, that there's resurrection power from, uh, for them, I think they began to understand something going on here. I believe some of these things started firing in their minds that God had brought Jesus back. God had breathed life into Jesus. Now, think about this. Early Easter Sunday morning, Jesus' body was in a tomb. It was laying on this slab. It has no power in it, no breath in it. He is dead. I've, I've had the privilege, some of you have had the privilege, of, of going to the Holy Land and entering what they call the garden tomb and to walk in and, and look where it is believed that the body of Jesus was laid. Now, we don't, nobody knows for certain if it's true, um, but different people, they've studied it, and, and in my own personal study, I believe it meets all the qualifications biblically, that that was where Jesus was laid. And his body was dead. And the Bible says that God, God in his power brought Jesus back to life. And the, the way that God has always brought life back in is through his breath. And I believe that that power was in the breath of God and he breathed on his son. And Jesus came back to life. That same breath, if you go back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Bible tells us that God formed man from the dirt, from the dust of the ground. Okay? And so what we have in Genesis 2 is here's Adam, and he's been formed. He's not alive yet. He's just laying on the ground. And God breathed into his nostrils, and it says that he became a living being. See, God breathes his breath on us. He puts his spirit in us and we become alive. That's what God did for Jesus. And this is why Jesus is now breathing on his disciples and saying, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathed this out. And the apostle Paul tells us that it's the same power. Look at this in Romans chapter 8. It said, God raised Jesus from the dead. And if God's spirit, God's breath is living in you, he will also give life to your bodies when they die. He'll give you spiritual life when you trust Christ, and then one day when these bodies stop, he will raise these to life once again. He'll give you life right now if you trust in him, and he'll give you eternal everlasting life at his return. So here's the question, has Jesus, has Jesus breathed on you? Has Jesus come to you and said, you can have peace with God. You can have the grace of God poured out through my sacrifice. Has he breathed on you? Are you living in the life of God, the spirit of the living God? Because if you are, then you will end up having the same power that the disciples received that day. Because they came out of that room. They came out of that place where they were locked, their place of shame, their place of brokenness, their, their, their place of fear. They, they were able to step out of that. Have you received the breath of Christ? Has he, have you let him breathe over you? See, it's the same power that his lifeless body had. It's the same power that gave life to Adam, the spirit of the living God. Coming into his people empowers us 
It empowers us. It, it empowered Adam that day that it came into him. That he could, he could walk. He could run. He could name animals. He could, you know, he could eat. He could pick his nose. He could do all kinds of things. Because God had empowered and breathed life into him. And God's plan is for us to experience the power of God breathing in us. Jesus was dead. God breathed life into him. And now he's breathing on his disciples. But there's more. There's more to this resurrection power. This last thing that I want to give you. And it's this. Jesus brings us resurrection peace by co-missioning us. By co-missioning us. By, by joining us into his mission. By bringing us into his mission. Friends, always remember it's his mission. It's not just ours. If it's ours, we're going to blow it. But it's, it's the mission of God on planet earth. We're to be on mission with the Lord together. And I want you to look at how, again, verses 21 and 23 are tied, glued together by the, the breathing of the Spirit in us. Jesus said in verse 21 to them again, peace be with you. Second time, just a few verses, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Then it says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That's a strange ending. This first meeting of the disciples, that verse 23 is a really strange ending. Um, but I, just give me a second. We'll, we'll get there. Breathing, we've said, integrally connects verse 21 and 23. It's this, it's this connecting phase. And John wants us to see this, that it's the breath of God, the Spirit of God, that allows us to have Jesus send us to do what he has done. Please don't, don't miss this again. He fills us and he gives us life. He empowers us and that enables us so that he can send us out. To do what? What's the, what's the end game? Well, remember, Jesus came to give, to give life, to give grace, to give peace. You know, he said, peace be with you. And then to forgive, give forgiveness. And so part of the commissioning that he gives us here in, in, the, in, in this moment in John chapter 20 is that we would be part of the peace-giving mission, the peacemaking mission, and part of that Central to that would be forgiveness. But I want you to notice this. Jesus told his disciples back in Matthew chapter 5 verse 9. Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. One of the ways that you will be able to identify the people of God that are part of the kingdom of God. Is they will be part of the peacemaking mission. They will be people sent by God with the breath of God, living in the peace of God and the grace of God, bringing peace to others. Uh, Jesus' half-brother James was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write about this in James 3. It says, and those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. I can't tell you how many uh, people, Christians, I hear talking about, writing about on the internet, tweeting about, you know, our nation needs to get back to God. Our nation needs to be back to God. We need to be a righteous nation. We need to pursue righteousness. You know what James tells us? How that's going to come about? When the people of God start planting seeds of peace. 
That's, when, that, that's what it says here. As those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace, what do we reap? A harvest of righteousness. We'll get to see righteousness come. But friends, if you read the newspaper, if you follow anyone on Twitter, if you, anything like that, one of the last things that's going on in our world today uh, in, in Christian ministry is us distributing peace. We're too busy picking fights with other Christians online. We're too busy backbiting and fighting about things that don't matter as much as bringing peace and extending forgiveness. We, we want to attack one another. And Jesus has called us to co-mission the, the, the gospel message of peace, that it's possible to have peace with God. And because of that, we can have peace with our brothers and sisters. But that only comes through the pathway as Jesus kind of ends his message here. Through the pathway of forgiveness. Through, through this pathway of forgiveness. Jesus is calling us as part of our mission to first of all proclaim the forgiveness of God available through Jesus. But then to forgive. That we would actively put into practice in our lives forgiving one another. Forgiving even those who persecute us for Jesus' namesake. Remember Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. I send you the way the Father sent me. I send you to bring peace, to bring, to bring forgiveness. I'm, I'm breathing on you the Spirit so that you could become this grace-giving, peacemaking, sin-forgiving disciple. That's what he's calling us to do. Now, so don't miss this, that the Holy Spirit, why he's given Jesus said, I'm breathing the Spirit on you so that I could send you the way, the way that I've been sent. The church in America seems to want the breath of the Spirit for our own, our own purposes. You know, we, we want the Spirit to move powerfully in my life so I can achieve my goals and my dreams. And what Jesus said is, no, no. I'm breathing on you so that you could be a messenger of peace. That you could be a dispenser of forgiveness. That you could proclaim forgiveness and demonstrate forgiveness. Not, so, not just for your own good. And this is one of the reasons that I believe we as the church need to cry out to God as a nation. Asking forgiveness. Asking that, that God would. That, that he would heal our land. But at what Michelle read to you earlier from 2 Second, Second Chronicles 7. We've got to humble ourselves first. We, we, we've got to be those people who will come to grips with, Lord, I, I, I got to forgive. We'll humble ourselves and forgive others. Not, not chase down others, not harm others, not speak evil against others, but that we will forgive. And, you know, a huge part of Jesus' earthly ministry was prayer. Did you, did, when you see him praying, the, the disciples saw him do lots of things. One of the few things that they asked Jesus to teach him how to do was pray like he did. And so part of our mission, this co-mission, is that, that we would pray. That we would seek God in prayer. Jesus wants to enable us to do that in the, in the Spirit. And so he tells them, if you forgive the sins of any... They are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Here's what I think Jesus is saying there. He said, I'm sending you out not only to proclaim forgiveness of God, but I'm sending you out to forgive. And if you are locked in a room 
still of dread and bitterness and unforgiveness, forgiveness is not going to flow. It's not going to happen. See, true forgiveness, first of all, requires that we position ourselves under God and make ourselves vulnerable to receive forgiveness. We've got we've to do that. And if we want to forgive others, we've got to do the same thing. We've got to make ourselves... One of the reasons so many people hold on to bitterness and resentment instead of moving into forgiveness is because we know that if we forgive somebody, they might take advantage of us again. If we forgive somebody, that may set us up for them to harm me again, to to hurt my feelings, to, to do whatever. Friends, true forgiveness requires vulnerability. It requires that we swallow something personally on our end. But Jesus said, if you want to experience the full measure of forgiveness, you're going to have to forgive. Again, back to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has just taught his disciples how to pray. He's given this model prayer. Some people call it the Lord's Prayer. I think it's better called the Disciples' Prayer. But in Matthew chapter 6, he, he, he shows them how to pray, some, some, a pathway for prayer, if you would. And then when he gets done with that, he, he says these words. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses... Neither will your father forgive your trespasses. I like the way the message uh, translation paraphrases. It says, in prayer, there is a connection between what God does and what you do. You can't get forgiveness from God, for instance, without also forgiving others. If you refuse to do your part, you cut yourself off from God's part. Are you cut off from experiencing forgiveness? Because if you are, you're going to miss out on that peace that Jesus says he wants to be with you. If you are not experiencing forgiveness from God, it may be because you aren't giving forgiveness to others. There is a connection, a direct. Now, does this mean that um, you'll, you'll die and go to hell if you've trusted Christ and you forgot to forgive somebody? No, that's not what it means. What it means, however, is that in the here and now, You will not experience the peace that Jesus has planned for you. You will not receive all of the grace that God has for you here and now. And you will not experience the forgiveness of the cross in your life in full measure. Because when you're holding on to unforgiveness and bitterness, you're keeping those things locked up. And as verse 23 told us, if you forgive the sins of any, they, they're forgiven them. But if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. It's going to be withheld from you. You're not going to be able to experience the full measure of God's forgiveness in your life. You cut yourself off. And in essence, what you do is you put yourself back in one of those locked rooms. Back in one of those places where you're cut off. Back in a place of fear. Back in a place of brokenness. Back in that place of shame. And Jesus is wanting to come and stand there. And he wants to speak peace over you. But you've got to receive his grace. And you've got to receive his forgiveness. And then you've got to display it and demonstrate it and give it to others. So that you will not experience it being withheld from you. And God wants to do that for his church. 
God wants to do that for you and for me. He wants to revive us. He wants to send a revival of peace. Peace be with you. He wants us to experience the full measure of his grace that leads to peace. And then in that peace, we become people who proclaim forgiveness and display forgiveness by the way we live our lives. God wants to send that kind of revival, that kind of reviving in our nation. He wants us to pray for it. But at first, he wants us to live in it, to receive it ourselves, to live in that peace that comes through his grace by the experience of forgiveness. Let's pray. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if you showed up today feeling locked in some self-imposed dungeon of bitterness or brokenness or unforgiveness or despair or fear. But I do know this. The word that Jesus wants you to hear is that he wants you to know his peace. And he will come to you where you're at and he will speak peace and he will display his grace towards you through his sacrificial death. And he will empower you with his spirit if you will trust him. If you will trust him for the very first time to become your Lord and Savior, if you will cry out to him, Jesus, I believe that your death on the cross paid the penalty for my sin. I turn from pursuing becoming leader of my own life, Lord of my, I want you to be the Lord of my life. And Jesus says if you come to him that way, he will bring peace with God to your life. You'll see the grace, you'll receive the grace of God, you'll know the forgiveness of God, and you'll get to walk in that peace, that resurrection peace that breathes life into you. But most of us here, we've done that. But in so many places, like the disciples, we've gone back and locked ourselves into a prison because we have not lived from that forgiveness. We've not given that forgiveness. We don't live out of grace. We don't extend grace. We don't know His peace intimately and personally because of it. And God is standing by wanting to revive us, wanting to send that kind of revival of peace into your heart, in your mind. He wants to take a stand there and fill your life. And so you can just cry out to him. Revive me with your peace, oh God. Revive, sin revival. He wants to. Lord, we come now. We come to cry out that you, oh God, would come and revive us individually, as a church at River Bluff, in this place in North Charleston, as the people of God in our city and in our nation, God, we come. Revive us, God. Let your peace fill us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.